Well, greetings, Grace Chapel. Good to have you with us all today, wherever you might be on this Vision Sunday. You're in Lexington or East Lexington, Wilmington, Watertown, Foxborough, GC at night, Amherst, New Hampshire, Timbuktu, wherever you happen to be, we are glad you're with us. And we're crazy enough to believe that it's not by accident that we're all together today. We're beginning a new season together as a church, and we believe God has great things in store for us. Well, two of the sweetest words a person can hear, I think, are the words, you're invited. Our only daughter's getting married, and we're throwing a big blowout at the Four Seasons downtown, and you're invited. My parents said I could bring three of my best friends to the closing Yankees-Red Sox game at Fenway this year, and you're invited. The church is forming a new strategy team to think about the future of our ministry, and we're looking for some key leaders, and you're invited. Those are sweet words. An invitation means that someone wants you. Someone's thinking of you. Someone values you. They think you have something to offer. They want to spend time with you. Something exciting is happening, and you get a chance to be part of it. You're invited. But they can also be scary words, too. Uncomfortable. What if you hate weddings? Or you're planning to go to the Cape that weekend? What if the Yankees win? And you have to watch Aaron Judge hit another home run. What if the church wants more out of you than just some time on a team? They want you to continue giving service and leadership and maybe money to the ministry going forward. Sweet and scary words. It can be scary just as much to offer an invitation as well. I mean, take a bit of a risk when you do that. What if the person you invite says no? What if, you, what if the thing you invite them to turns out to be a dud? What if they turn out to be a dud? It's very vulnerable to extend an invitation. You're invited. Two sweet and scary words. And yet two words that are at the very heart of our relationship with God. You're invited. I think a lot of people, when they consider a relationship with God, they think of it in terms of commandments that we have to keep. Things we need to do or not do in order to kind of stay out of trouble. I was visiting a church in another city recently as I walked into this beautiful new building and stepped into this otherwise welcoming lobby space. There was right in the center this big stone monument in the shape of two tablets with the Ten Commandments etched in stone. I thought, yikes. <laughs> I mean, that's intimidating. Is that where we're going to begin keeping this list? It felt like a burden, a heavy one. And I'm a pastor for crying out loud. <laughs> But I think a lot of people think about a relationship with God like that. But what if it's not, not about keeping commandments? What if it's about responding to an invitation? What if God is inviting us into a relationship with him that can not only be good for us, but good for the world as well? Well, this fall, we're going to be considering Jesus' invitation to follow him, to follow him into a life of incredible beauty and impact and joy. It's an invitation he originally extended to 12 individuals, but it's an invitation that he now offers to every human being on the planet 
everyone in the sound of my voice today, we're all invited to follow Jesus. If you were here last year, you might remember our sense that God was putting a, a fresh kind of vision on our hearts. It was a vision to go, to, to get out of the building, to stop waiting around for people to find their way to church and instead to get out and meet people where they already are in our workplaces and neighborhoods and parks and schools and gyms and all the place we go in the course of a daily week. It's a vision that was grounded in Jesus' final words to the disciples and us, what we call the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all peoples. We talked about shifting from a come and see posture to a go and do posture, about moving from an attractional kind of a church to a missional kind of church. Instead of trying to get more people in the seats on Sunday, let's get more people in the streets on Monday. We talked about finding your go, a phrase we kind of stumbled upon in a brainstorming session, but a phrase that captured our imagination. Your go is your unique contribution to the work of God in the world. Well, it all sounds very fresh and wonderful, exciting, but, but how exactly do you find your go? More importantly, how do you live your go in this postmodern post-Christian, post-civil society we find ourselves in? And how do you maintain your go when the demands of everyday life itself are just about overwhelming? Well, these are the questions we're hoping to explore this year as we together begin to follow Jesus, as we, as we learn to be and go with Jesus. We're calling it a year of mobilization. That's the last time you'll hear me say that out loud, okay? Because it sounds awfully ponderous. It's really all about developing and deploying thousands of people every, every Sunday afternoon to leave our places and go out on Monday to be about the work of the kingdom, being and bringing good news to people. But I came across a statistic recently it says that 90% of church members say they are not being equipped by their church to live out their faith in everyday life. Now, that feels like a pretty big miss to me, and we want to be sure that doesn't happen on our watch. So this fall, we're going to go to the Gospels, Matthew and Mark in particular, and we're going to follow Jesus as he trains the 12, as he develops them and then deploys them for a life of mission. It's going to be practical. It's going to be honest. It's going to be surprising at points, I hope. It's going to get uncomfortable at points. I believe it's going to be transformative for our lives and homes and church and communities and city and the world. And the best part is we're all invited. You're invited. Whatever stage of life you find yourself in, whether you are new or a long timer to Grace Chapel, however much or little you know about the Bible, wherever you are in your journey of faith, whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, you're invited to follow Jesus into a life of incredible beauty, impact, and joy. So let's get started and find out what, it, what we're in for. We're going to begin today in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 19. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles or up on the screens, you can do that. Uh, let's jump into Mark chapter 3. This kind of sets the stage for the passage we're going to look at. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. 
Let's just pause here for a minute and notice how incredibly popular Jesus has become. Notice that he tries to get away from the crowd, but the crowd actually searches him out and finds him. And notice the people are coming from all over the place, not just Galilee and even Judea, but all the way north to Tyre and Sidon, all the way south to Idumea, which was below Judea, west on the other side of the Jordan River. They're coming from everywhere, even from non-Jewish territories, thousands and thousands of people traveling days and days to get there, just to see, hear, get close to Jesus. Keep reading, we'll get a sense of the intensity of this interest. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Now, it helps to understand that rabbis were the rock stars of their day, kind of like pastors today, right? (laughs) Yeah, not so much. They were celebrities. They were the A-list people. They were the ones we'd be following on Twitter. They are the ones we'd be watching on The View or 60 Minutes. And here's this Rabbi Jesus who's, who's, who's uh, not only an incredible teacher, but he's from Galilee of all places, and he's outperforming signs and wonders, healing and driving out demons. And the passage gives us a sense there's so many people clamoring to get near Jesus, it's downright dangerous. So the same way a celebrity today has his body man in his black limo ready to whisk him away, Jesus has his boys in a boat, all poised. <laughs> if this crowd gets out of hand, he's getting out of there. And so with the sense of Jesus' popularity and his presence, we can appreciate what's going to happen next. Verse 13. Jesus went up into the hills and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now talk about being invited. Think about this for a moment. Imagine you're one of these thousands of people who've come from all over the place just to get a glimpse of Jesus. You're camping out overnight because you want to be there in the morning. You want to get a good spot. Like people lining up for the new Apple store opening up or whatever it is. They're wanting to get there first. Someone wakes you up while it's still, still a dim light and says, psst, psst, he wants you. What do you mean? Who wants me? The rabbi, Jesus. He wants you up on the hillside. Why does he want me? So imagine these, these 12 have, have been summoned up to the hillside where Jesus is. And, and they're gathered around this baker's dozen, Jesus and the 12, right? They're all wondering why they've been singled out. Are they in trouble? How does Jesus even know who they are? Some of them knew each other already. Others were strangers. So I imagine these 12 guys doing what guys do, sizing each other up around. You know, who's got more money? Who could I take? All that kind of stuff, you know? And then we're told, he appointed 12. 
That word appointed is interesting. It could literally be translated, he made 12. He created 12. He formed 12. It's language that's deliberately meant to take us back to Genesis 1, to the creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. He made them. And then he names them one by one. Now imagine how that must have felt for Jesus, this rabbi, to be calling your name out loud. How does he even know me? Imagine you're a young musician, you're playing a gig at some bar in Boston, and afterwards some guy knocks on your door and gives you a business card and says, hey, Jay-Z was in the crowd and he wants you to come to the studio. <laughs> Imagine you're a young business person, you get recruited by Sheryl Sandberg to intern with her at Facebook. Or you're a young football player and you hear that Bill Belichick wants you to try out for the practice squad. I mean, this is a big deal. And then notice what Jesus calls them to. Two things that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Now, first, to be with him. Now, that's, that's the standard arrangement in the day for rabbis and, and students, that they would be with them. They would sit at the rabbi's feet. They would follow him around. They would learn from him all they could. And we might describe it as mentoring or, um, or a developmental kind of an exercise, maybe an apprenticeship. But it's much more than that. This is a 24-7 kind of thing. You would live with your rabbi, literally walk in his dust. Spend so much time with him until you began to think like him. and You began to act like him. It was an invitation to a very intimate, formative relationship. But Jesus' invitation doesn't stop there to be with him. He goes on to say, it was also that he might send them out. Now, this was unusual. This is different from the normal rabbi-student relationship. Jesus is not only promising to invest in these guys, to teach them everything he knows, he's then going to entrust them with his work, to go out and do the things that he's been doing, to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. To preach have authority, drive out demons. I mean, these are just a bunch of guys. I mean, Mark names them very intentionally, I think, to remind us of their ordinariness and even their weakness. He slips in the name there about Simon, who he called Peter, because we know how ironic it is that this impulsive Simon will become Petros the Rock. How about the sons of thunder? Mark is reminding us that these guys were unpredictable. At one point, they'll call down fire to incinerate their critics. They'll be jockeying with each other for positions around the table. These are the guys. Judas, the betrayal. And then all these nobodies, Thaddeus, James, what's his name? They're a bunch of nobodies. But Jesus is going to send them out. He's going to authorize them. He's going to give them power to, to proclaim God's good news, to heal minds and hearts, and to push back the powers of darkness. I mean, this is crazy. This is like Sheriff Andy Taylor giving Barney Fife a loaded gun. <laughs> What's he thinking? You're going to invest in these guys, Jesus? Three years? and then trust them with the work of the kingdom. Here are these fallen, fallible, ordinary men, and Jesus invites them into intimate relationship and genuine partnership. How sweet and scary that must have been. 
But as remarkable as this invitation is, what's more remarkable is that you and I are invited into the very same thing. The call Jesus extended to these 12 individuals on that day, at the end of his ministry, he would extend to a whole bunch of others who were following and all who would come after. Therefore, go, he would say, and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, notice again the twofold invitation to be with and to be sent out. Only this time the order is reversed, right? He begins with, therefore, go, and then says, I'll be with you, because he wants them to understand that this being with goes along with the going out. In fact, he says, don't hang around here where it's safe. You go out there, and I'll meet you there. I'll meet you out there beyond the walls of the synagogue and the temple. I'll meet you where the people are. From this point on, the only way to be with Jesus would be to go with Jesus. The only way. In other words, it's an invitation to grow as we go. To grow as we go. Let me explain what I mean by that and why it's so important for us. There's always been this tension in the church between what we traditionally call discipleship and evangelism. In more contemporary church talk, we would say spiritual formation and missional living. And apologies, by the way, for the insider church talk for a few minutes. I encourage you not to use this language on the soccer sidelines. It's not going to impress anybody, okay? But we're just trying to understand how the church works here. To put it in plain language, it's this tension between growing in our faith and reaching out to others. Churches have always grappled with with these two things, which one's more important? Which one comes first? Which one is the essential work of the church? And we found ourselves, staff and elders, this past spring, asking this same question as we thought about this year of, dare I say it, mobilization. As we got ready to send people out to go and do in Jesus' name, we want to be sure that at the same time, we're not neglecting the responsibility to nurture people's faith and our own, to care for our own souls, to grow in our knowledge of scriptures and our relationship with God. To put it more bluntly, we don't want to be so busy saving the world that we risk losing our own souls. But what Jesus makes clear from his initial call to the Great Commission, is that these two things, growing and going, they happen together. It's not one without the other. It's not one before the other. It's one with the other. The two belong together. In fact, I would say that discipleship and evangelism, formation and mission, they're not only simultaneous, they are synergistic. They fuel each other and work together. Let me try to illustrate what I'm after here. Years ago, I was a senior in high school, and our church youth group got a, a new youth pastor. 
Now, you've heard me talk about our youth group before. It was really great. We had a great run, and we were a very outreach-oriented youth group. We had this coffee house on Friday nights that would bring hundreds and hundreds of unchurched kids. On Saturday nights, we'd go out to the mall, and we'd take spiritual surveys. We went door-to-door to every house in our town and invited them to church. We'd go to the streets of New York City and hand out literature. It was this vibrant, very outreach-oriented group. Well, senior year, we got a new youth pastor, and he announced that we are going to take a break from all this outreach kind of activity, and we were going to focus on discipleship, on, on, on Bible study and prayer and worship and fellowship. And we were going to get strong spiritually first, he said, and then, then we'll begin reaching out. Now, it sounded smart and it sounded spiritual, but I remember being just a little bit worried about that strategy To make a long story short, fast forward five years, I came back to that church as the next youth pastor. And I discovered that this once vibrant, growing group of kids on fire for God had dwindled to about a dozen bored, cynical, apathetic church kids who dared me to try to get their attention. And it wasn't because they hadn't been studying the Bible or praying or going to church. It it was because they'd lost their heart for mission. Friends, that's what happens when we lose our heart for the world. We shrivel up. We become ingrown and self-centered and petty. We become preoccupied with insignificant things. We lose our sense of urgency for Bible study and prayer and worship and fellowship because we need those things if we're going to make it and have an impact out there. You cannot separate discipleship and evangelism. They belong together. They fuel each other. And so that's why Jesus invites his disciples to be with him and to be sent out from him. Notice, he's not going to train them for three years and then deploy them. No, they're going to start right from the get-go. And we're going to see this pattern again and again as we work our way through the scriptures. We're going to find Jesus kind of calling the 12 together. They hunker down. They have a really sweet time of fellowship and teaching and prayer. And the disciples say, this is great, Jesus. And then he kicks them right out into some hungry mob of people or some demoniac encounter and he lets them struggle for a while. Sometimes he does it the other way around. He kicks them out first and lets them get in trouble and struggle out there. And then they come running back and they say, Jesus, tell us how this works. And he says, okay, now you're ready to learn because Jesus understood they would grow as they go. And that's how it's going to work for us as well. That's what we are going to be doing this year, growing as we go spiritual formation and missional living at the same time. One Christian leader puts it this way. Mission has always formed disciples. To be a follower of Jesus, you have to be aware of God's purposes for the world and the part you are called to play. At that point, your spiritual growth really begins. And so this is where the divine invitation begins, to grow as we go. We are invited to grow as we go with Jesus. And Jesus articulates it all very simply and beautifully here, but the truth is, this invitation had been out there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. 
Remember how we said that the language of Mark 3 is meant to remind us of Genesis 1, the creation language, the naming language? From the very moment God first formed man and woman, breathed into them the breath of life, he was inviting them into something. Listen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. From the very beginning, God was inviting humanity into a relationship with him. That's why he he made us in his image, so we could think and feel and act. We could love and communicate. But he also created us to be in partnership with him. That's why he made us to work and create and produce and reproduce. Be filled, increase, subdue, he said. He gives the man and woman work to do. He says, let's see what you can do with this garden. Let's take care of it together and see what it can become. Talk about an invitation. This is like like Chip and Joanna Gaines knocking on the door of your fixer-upper and saying, hey, let's see what we can do together. That was the invitation. I mentioned we got to travel to Italy this past summer for the first time, and In addition to the gelato and the pasta, I fell in love with the work of Michelangelo. Not just the artistry of it, the David, the Pietà, the Sistine Chapel, not just his artistry, but his grand, fresh vision for God and humanity in all their splendor and possibility. This creation moment we've been talking about, it's the centerpiece of his fresco of the Sistine Chapel. Let's take a closer look at the moment we just spoke about, the creation of Adam. Here's God reaching out, extending his hand to the human he has just formed. And if you can, notice notice the look on God's face. He knows what he's about to do, the incredible risk he's taking, inviting this mortal, this fallible, this created being into partnership with him to turn him loose in the world. And look at Adam. He's also reaching out a little more tentatively, perhaps. The initiative is with God, clearly. Does Adam know what he's getting into? Is he ready to step into all the creator has in mind? It's a sweet and scary moment. Michelangelo wants us to feel the tension of this moment, the drama of this invitation Look closely, there's just a little bit of space still left between their outstretched hands. Will God really make good on the offer? And will Adam and Eve really accept that offer? And if they do, what's going to happen next? Well, we know what happens next. The man and woman accept that invitation. They join God in his work and very quickly fail and fall. And so later along comes Noah and his family, and God begins again, and that doesn't go well. Also then along comes Abraham and Sarah, and God begins again, this time calling Abraham, Sarah, and 12 of his descendants, and says, look, I'll I'll form a relationship with you. I'll be your God, and you be my people, and we'll, we'll... 
do my work in this world. And, and Israel accepts that invitation and things go well for a little while, but not very long. And it all unravels again. So, so what makes us think it's going to work this time with this motley crew of 12 fallen ordinary guys? The difference is that this time, God is with them. This time, Jesus has come, the Son of God, to be with them, not only in those moments, but by his Holy Spirit to be with them every day, every way, everywhere, always to the very end of the age with them and with us, because that's how it works. We grow as we go. You know, I was thinking about this whole dynamic, this invitation to grow and grow, and I realized this is how it always works. I'm thinking back to last winter, those of you who are here, we invited the congregation, each of us, to take our next step on a generosity journey, to to become more generous to giving to God's work so that we could grow spiritually as individuals and so the church could fulfill its mission to go. And nearly a 1,000 of us took that step last year. And as a result, this September, we are in the black ahead of budget for the first time in September in many, many, many years. And that's good news. It is good news. It is good news. Because of that, our renovations in Foxborough are just about complete in time for the grand opening in just a few weeks. Because of that, we've been putting funds away for the Wilmington campus that we might do some expansion work there in the near future. But more importantly, because of that, a thousand and more of us have grown in our faith and our ability to trust God in our engagement with his work in the world and with a generosity of spirit. We grow as we go. Then I thought back to last spring when we invited any of you who live in the Foxborough area or anybody who wants to be part of something new to help launch that new campus this fall. We were praying for 150. It seemed outrageous. Last Sunday, Labor Day Sunday, we had 147 people in Foxborough on a holiday weekend. <laughs> Amen. And as exciting as that is, I dare you to ask any one of those people if they don't feel closer to God, more engaged with the work of the church, more passionate about serving and reaching their neighbors than they did six months or a year ago, because that's how it works. We grow as we go. And so we're going to have that same opportunity this year. We're going to focus on mission, on getting out of the door and out of the building, because we know as we do that, we're going to grow. And in particular, we'd like to invite you into a handful of things that we believe can help each of us to do that. And I'll talk you through them quickly and then we'll be done. First, we're inviting you to worship weekly. We need to be together once a week at least to recenter ourselves, to get our marching orders, to get our hearts right, to go back out there again. So if you're in town and healthy, we invite you to worship weekly at a campus near you. Secondly, we're inviting you to belong to a group. We, we need each other. We need encouragement, we need support, we need help through the crises of life, we need to be accountable to each other. And so whether it's a men's group, a women's group, a life community group, a care group, a fire group, a student group, belong to a group this year, you're invited. You're invited to serve on a team. Nothing, nothing will bring more richness to your life with God than to serve somebody else in the body of Christ. Kidstown, especially on all of our campuses, is, is a welcome opportunity to begin to give yourself away. But 
Worship, technology, welcome teams, cafe. There's all kinds of ways to serve on a team. Number four, you're invited to give generously. The happiest people in the world, the most engaged people in the world are those who give freely of their time, energy, and resources. And then finally, you're invited to find your go, to discover your unique contribution to God's work in the world beyond the walls of the church. Now, if you're doing all five of those, way to go. Chances are there's one or two or three that might have room for you to grow into this year. So that's where we're headed. And the best part about the whole thing is not just that we're going to go and grow. It's that we're going to go and grow with Jesus. All these things are about drawing us into a deeper, more satisfying relationship with him. This past Thursday night, I had a chance to join a few hundred other ministry leaders from all over the country and even all over the world for a memorial service for Dr. Haddon Robinson, who passed away earlier this summer at the age of 80-something. Now, many of you know Dr. Robinson. He's a well-known preacher of, uh, professor of preaching, taught at three different seminaries over the course of his lifetime. Uh, Haddon literally wrote the book on preaching, a book that's been translated into languages is used all over the world to prepare biblical preachers. He preached here at Grace Chapel for a period of time uh, back in the day. Considered by many to be one of the most influential preachers of the past 50 or even 100 years, and most importantly, a good and godly man. I had the privilege of studying under Haddon Robinson, first at Denver Seminary years ago, and then more recently back here at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And Haddon could be an intimidating figure. When he critiqued one of your sermons in class, you just wanted to crawl under the desk. <laughs> but he could also be an incredibly affirming figure. I remember once after preaching, he came walking towards me, and I, I wondered what he was going to say, and he didn't say a word. He just threw his arms around me and hugged me. And it was an affirming moment for me as a young preacher. Many years later, it was Dr. It was Haddon Robinson who, who suggested, submitted my name to the search committee here at Grace Chapel and was helpful in landing me here for this chapter of ministry. I didn't even know he knew who I was. Well, anyway, Thursday night toward the end of the service, those of us who'd been his students somewhere along the way were invited to stand and sing a hymn. And, and as we stood, as I looked around the room at these preachers and pastors and professors and missionaries from all over the country, we were all so proud. We're all so grateful to have known this good and godly man. More than that, for him to have invested in us, how grateful were we? And more than that, for him to trust us to do his work in the sense of privilege and responsibility that we now are to carry on this work so that people everywhere could speak and hear and receive God's good news. It was an incredible moment. But friends, as wonderful as it is to be mentored and trusted by someone like that, we have the opportunity to be mentored and trusted by Jesus himself. God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, knows your name and has a particular role for you to play in this world. 
God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the most beautiful, powerful person who ever lived, wants to be friends with you, wants to do life with you. God, the Holy Spirit, will live in you and with you in every way, every day, until Jesus comes again. You talk about an invitation. It doesn't get sweeter or scarier than that. The only thing left for us is to respond to that invitation. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for a fresh start, for a new season and the promise that it holds and perhaps the challenges that we know it presents. But we're grateful that you have a greater purpose for this season than mere survival and getting through. You want to do something good in and through us individually and collectively. And so, Lord, together today, we present ourselves before you. We receive this invitation. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we might say yes to following Jesus wherever you will lead us in the year to come, individually and as your people. So we invite you to do this work in our hearts as we make our way through the gospel this fall. Inspire, challenge, equip, train, and bless us as we head out into this world to do good things for your glory, the good of the world, and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.